549. Warning. Access restricted. Please submit to DNA. Verification. Processing. Verification complete. Access granted. Welcome. Hello and welcome to the Monitor Room at the Christian Geek Central Podcast, a biblical examination and celebration of geekery and geek entertainment, as well as the official podcast of ChristianGeekCentral.com. I'm Peter Franson from Spirit Blade Productions, producing entertainment and resources to hopefully equip, encourage, and inspire Christian geeks like you and me to live in the freedom and purpose that Christ has given us. For more information about Spirit Blade Productions, you can check out SpiritBlade.com or by checking us out at Patreon dot com slash spirit blade productions on the show today a review of justice league versus the fatal five the animated dc movie and a conversation with mike perna of inroads ministries about how to effectively use tabletop gaming for ministry plus some brief somewhat off-the-cuff thoughts about god as a storyteller that i've been reflecting on this week and and specifically what the story of easter says about our own stories that we're kind of living out day to day. All right, here we go. My father once told me that I could use my powers to make a difference. He told me I had a responsibility to help others. He told me I could save this world, save everyone. Then he told me, walk the gerbil, walk the gerbil. Frickin' weirdo. Justice League versus The Fatal Five, the synopsis on IMDb, puzzlingly reads The Justice League Battles The Fatal Five, Therok, Emerald Empress, Validus, Mano, and The Persuader, based on the characters created by Jim Shooter. That's it. Um, there's probably a better synopsis that someone else put out, but that is... Ooh, man. Um, so you got Starboy. He's a member of the Legion of Superheroes in the far-flung future. And he ends up having to chase some villains back into the past, into present-day times. And uh, he's chasing them down because they're trying to do some bad things in that time period. But Starboy suffers from schizophrenia. And his medication that's effective in helping him is only available in the 31st century. And so coming back to the 21st century, he's kind of hosed. Um, And so he has trouble uh, not only... Uh, focusing and, and doing what he needs to do to find the bad guys, but like getting people to believe him, you know, they think he's insane because he's he's displaying these other symptoms of schizophrenia, you know. Uh, meanwhile, you've got a relatively new Green Lantern that has uh, joined the Justice League in some kind of capacity when Jon Stewart presumably is not around. And before she became a Green Lantern, she... Um, had a horrible experience of watching some close friends of her be murdered. And it's in a in the scene in this movie, it's near the beginning. It's like, they don't show as much as they could, but sometimes it's what they don't show that just makes you cringe. And I was like, dang, this is freaking brutal. And uh, so she's dealing with post-traumatic stress disorder. And uh, both of these two characters with mental disorders um, are, are really the focus of the story. And the themes of mental disorder are, are a prominent part of how things play out out and where they go even in the climax um the 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 issues of mental disorder are really front and and center and uh uh i i was 
I was surprised and welcoming of, you know, them going for heavier issues. It's a little bit, it's a little bit of a bandwagon, I want to say, kind of thing that, you know, in geek culture and in geek entertainment, mental illness, people being aware of mental illness has become um, more of a thing. And so at this point, this felt a little bit like, oh, this is, you know, I, I think their hearts were in the right place. But it just feels a little bit like, okay, we're just doing this thing now that people are caring about and stuff, you know. Um that said, it's a good bandwagon to jump on, you know, uh, of the bandwagons that you could certainly choose. Uh, so, yeah, I, I welcomed it, but I did have some questions about, like, is this really the best story, the best type of, of, of animated DC movie to try and explore these themes in? Basically, as far as how the script and the tone and the pacing, all that kind of stuff feels to me, it's like a Justice League Unlimited episode or a series of three episodes maybe with rough language and mature themes of mental illness and you know you might think well that sounds cool i like justice league unlimited but um that art style and uh some of the logic of the scripts of justice league unlimited would just leave holes in them and normally i wouldn't notice those kinds of things because the 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 tone of a justice league unlimited episode is is light you know and it's not you're not supposed to be like thinking about these things as you would in if they were real but when they bring in these issues of mental illness when they roughen up the language uh, to make it you know feel a little bit more gritty or grown up or whatever you know then there's some switch in my brain that starts to ask the questions of yeah okay well you're you've got these real mental illness issues that you're dealing with and uh, trying to deal with i think in a responsible way but like you've got these story logic issues and for some reason my brain just didn't like uh having those those inconsistencies there um there's lots of action uh some lack of logic in the plot Let's see here. There's a few good jokes, usually, in, at least for my humor, you know, which is no indication of what you're going to laugh at, uh, usually involving Batman, but kind of a Justice League unlimited version of Batman. You know, like there's one punchline I laughed out loud at, but I was like, Batman wouldn't say that. He wouldn't say that. It was, it's a pop culture reference that he makes. And I'm like, Batman wouldn't say that, you know. <laughs> But it was still funny in the moment. I accepted it as this Justice League Unlimited version of Batman, you know. Um, let's see here. There is a third character who has arguably some... Um, I don't know if I would say mental illness issues, but uh, just some emotional health issues. Miss Martian, I think, is her name. I don't know where John, John Jones is, the Martian Manhunter, but she's the replacement, I guess, because she's female and we got to check that box or something i don't know that she's a more interesting character apart from maybe this insecurity issue but i think you could tell really interesting i think you could have told some really interesting emotional or mental health stories with john jones and so that felt including her and ditching martian manhunter felt a little you know like a demographic you know a, a demographic box checking going on but oh well they, they did an okay story with her i could have surgically removed her character from the story and just had a little more focus on Starboy and uh, Jessica Cruz, the Green Lantern. And I think I would have enjoyed it more, though. I didn't think she added a ton. Plot-wise, she was needed. They needed a telepath in the story. Anyway, um, so yeah, she's got some insecurity issues she's working through. The Fatal Five are the big villains, and you're seeing three of them for most of the story. And these are lesser-known villains for the futuristic Legion of Superheroes uh, DC comic book stories. And I wish that they 
had fleshed out the characters more in this story. I was familiar with their visual looks and with a couple of their names, but I really didn't know anything about their backstory, and they reveal almost nothing about their backstory and what drives them. You know, It's clear that one of them is motivated romantically to rescue a fellow teammate that he's romantically involved with. That's as far as I think they got in any kind of motives for these villains, and I really like to know the motives of the villains to help me engage with the, the story more. Um, let's see here. Although the language and the themes were mature, um, like I said, in other ways, it really had a Saturday morning vibe. I think in general, I was trying to think of who is this audience? Who, who's the audience for this? What's, who, who are they targeting? And, and it feels like a nostalgia play for fans of Justice League Unlimited. But at the same time, they're recognizing those fans are probably grown up a little bit more and they might welcome some rougher language and some more grown-up themes. And so I can appreciate that. But at the same time, you know, we live in this age where media of the past is is like just kind of frozen in time and always available now. And so like there could be new kids that are being exposed to the Justice League animated series um, that might be really enjoying that. Or maybe they just finished watching that. And then th- there's this thing that's playing to fans of Justice League Unlimited, but the language content and the thematic content is just not the right fit for the same audience as those Justice League Unlimited uh you know shows if you're you know so it i it's it's it was an interesting choice and it the blend didn't quite work for me i i was unable to invest uh in a lot of the story just because of of those two elements trying to work together for other people it might not be an issue but for me it was as far as the the cast goes you know it's the returning voices that you would expect from a uh, bruce tim animated tv show era you know and they all do a fine job including the new cast members as well uh the visual style i want to talk about that a little bit because it affects the the mood i think the tone of the whole thing it would be unfair to say that the animation quality is old TV caliber, I think. When I saw the trailer for this, I was like, oh man, this looks just like, exactly like a Justice League Unlimited episode, and they want me to pay a premium price to buy this movie, you know, or to rent it or whatever when I used to watch those for free and on TV, um, and they used to produce them on a weekly basis. This is something that they spent a lot of time producing and they're putting out now, and they're asking for, you know, a significant amount of money for. Um, So I was like, that's why I didn't, you know, I waited. I just waited till it was cheap on Redbox. I did not buy it the day it came out, you know. And I would still stand by that um but i I would because i I think that the the visual style is a little too dated and lower quote-unquote lower quality for me again it's it's an aesthetic choice they're purposefully making um but the animation is actually better i think than the justice league unlimited era it's a little bit smoother and they have visual effects that are a little bit more advanced than that time period it's just that the 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 designs of the characters are still kind of simple or or bland if you will you know um and there are also a few moments that i wish they would have added perspective blur you know where you use you blur one character to create an artificial uh, camera focus so that we can get a sense of like who is in the foreground and who is in the background there was one moment where uh, these heroes all came into a scene and the the order in which they appeared and the layout of them on screen uh, the first one was Miss Martian and I knew she's like a supposed to be a shapeshifter I think well maybe she can't I, I don't know if I saw her shapeshift once in this movie anyway I was like is she supposed to be giant size right now oh, wait a minute oh wait is Wonder Woman a giant and I was like, oh, no, no, okay, this is just a perspective issue. I'm not <laughs> seeing the way they want me to see it. You know, so that would have been nice to have a little bit of that uh, artificial uh, camera blur, you know, in there. Um, but, yeah, the visual style clearly seems to be a nostalgia play for Justice League Unlimited fandom. Um, felt like a weird blend, though. I would have preferred that uh, we had this story 
um, with these themes, with better logic and a more uh, advanced-looking art style. Um, as far as the music and sound go, I don't always comment on, on music. I will this time around, though. It sounds like Justice League Unlimited. You know, when they changed from the Justice League animated series to Justice League Unlimited, they really moved into, with the score, a very guitar, electric guitar-driven sound. Uh, distorted electric guitar, you know? And... So, like, the themes that once sounded triumphant and they would be horns playing, you know, were, like, suddenly rockified, you know? And I didn't like that transition when I was watching the animated series. It felt like, as I'm sure it was, a play to younger audiences and trying to rock it up and give it more action, make it feel more action-y and stuff and younger and cool and whatever. I didn't like it. Uh, it, uh, it took away some of the class that I thought that the score had. Um, and so... I didn't appreciate that here because I don't have nostalgia for that. I think it's a nostalgia play. I don't think that if they were coming to this fresh um, with a different art style and stuff like that, they would have chosen that rock, you know, sounding style. It was uh, a callback to Justice League Unlimited. And so I think if you have nostalgia for specifically that era of the Justice League animated series, then it's probably going to work for you. I don't, so it didn't work for me. Um, as far as themes, you know, is there, are there any worthwhile moral, philosophical, or spiritual themes um, being explored that might stimulate some worthwhile thought or heart examination or conversation of any kind? Um, well, you know, the mental illness issue, I think, is 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 definitely something that could uh, come out of seeing this movie and, and contemplating that, thinking about that. Jessica Cruz, the, the Greenland in this story, as I said, is dealing with uh, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. She is seeing a psychologist near the beginning of the story uh, who gives her, who had given her a mantra that she was supposed to tell herself. And she, you even see a scene where she's telling herself, you know, I'm getting better every day. It's like this self-positive self-talk, you know. And it wasn't working for her. She was like, yeah, right, you know, this is, you know, a load of crap, you know. Um, and the, she told that to the psychiatrist, it's not working for me, I just need drugs or something, you know. And the uh, psychologist, I think I said psychiatrist, sorry. I'm assuming it's a psychologist because she wasn't uh, prescribing medication. So the psychologist told her she needs to create her own mantra then, one that works for her, you know. And we see that play out later in the, uh, in the story. Uh, and it, it ultimately, without giving spoilers, plays out as arguably a sort of self-empowerment moment at the end. And while self-affirmation can be uh, valuable, any affirmations should first and foremost be based on truth, uh, not just like things that we try to trick ourselves into believing. Uh, and in the case of Christians, we have some incredible truths revealed in Scripture that should not be neglected when seeking to improve uh, our mental health or uh, our, our, our perspective on life. Uh, in Jessica's case, her mantra in the end was based on a truth, uh, but, it, you know, it, it was... It was very convenient. It was a convenient sci-fi-based truth that was the writers could just decide is true for her, you know? And so I think taking inspiration from that as an audience member and trying to apply that to one's own problems might be uh, inappropriate, you know? Um, uh, her mental health problems are ultimately come over kind of uh, overcome, excuse me, kind of conveniently to serve a dramatic purpose in the story. But real mental illness is not near so agreeable. So, um, so it brings a t as I said, it brings attention to these mental illness issues. But I I'm not sure that it uh, uh, it deals with them as in a, as a realist in a in as realistic a way as it could. Um, it oversimplifies them at the same time that it draws attention to them, even making them the object of humor in the case of Starboy. Starboy has schizophrenia, 
And sometimes his behavior, you know, makes him look a little bit silly and is clearly played for comedy, you know. Um, and so I kind of like, huh, that's that's an interesting choice, you know. Um, he is, as far as his treatment, he's being treated with medication rather than behavioral therapy. So uh, I did appreciate that a spectrum of treatment for mental illness is represented. I think that's good. I think leaning on uh, any one approach alone and just saying, no, I'm not going to do behavioral therapy. I'm not going to uh, allow for the possibility of medication, you know. Um, I think ruling those things out uh, is uh, unwise. Um, and at the same time, as a Christian, I would say leaning solely on the remembrance of and trust in scriptural truth claims may not be enough. You know, you may need uh, some some behavioral uh, uh, therapy of some kind, or you may need medication of some kind, you know. So, um, so I appreciated that they were representing at least some spectrum in treating mental health concerns. And uh, uh, yeah, and I think limiting ourselves is just a disservice to our own efforts to become healthy. Um, there's also a great theme that I almost missed that didn't become clear to me until the end. And again, I won't give spoilers. And that theme is the feeling of being misunderstood and overlooked because of personality traits that you have that affect others negatively. This applies not just to those with mental illness, I think, but a wide variety of us geeks uh, who often feel misunderstood and overlooked and underappreciated. You know, we think, I I'm valuable. Why can't, why can't people see that, you know? And this movie provides both an example of compassion for someone in that situation and also a cathartic reckoning uh, for the same character later on that just uh, really felt good to me as I watched. I was very moved by, you know, uh, after feeling disconnected with much of the movie, I was surprised at how engaged and emotionally moved I was by this moment near the end. Um, that said, I have no idea what your preferences and tastes are in movies. Uh, so if I were a time traveler, I'd go back in time and say, Peter, um, rent it cheap. Or wait for like a free streaming service to have it, or maybe a service that you're already paying for monthly, you know. It's Justice League Unlimited with added grown-up themes, at least attempts, um, and some successes there. Uh, it's a mixed bag. And, you know, rough language, I guess, just to be cool and edgy. Uh, you won't want to buy it, but, f well, at least not for more than a few bucks, you know, maybe a bargain bin sometime. You can get it for three to five bucks, uh, and you'll be fine just watching this once. It's rated PG-13 for sequences of sci-fi violence, some bloody images, language, and partial nudity. And if you're curious, that's, uh, it's kind of like a, Kyle Reese time traveler type moment, you know, where Starboy's butt crack can be just seen a little bit from, you know, one angle. It's, uh, yeah, and it's, it's, and it's, it's Justice League Unlimited style, you know, line drawing. And so it's not like it looks like this really realistic butt, you know. <laughs> so anyway, there you go. I want to remind you guys to check out the other members of the Christian Geek Central Network, such as the Strangers and Aliens podcast, the Theology Gaming podcast, the Untold podcast, POSTOS, Helix Reviews, and the Retro Rewind podcast. There we go, dang it, one breath. For more information about the CGC Network, visit ChristianGeekCentral.com. Data collection complete. Activating Usenet 1.0. 
This week at ChristianGeekCentral.com, I'm pointing you to three different articles from three different outlets. The first from the guys at Love Thy Nerd, the article titled How Nostalgia Helps Us and How It Hurts Us Too. And then Geeks Under Grace uh, posted a review for, uh, is it Sekiro or Sekiro? I can never remember. Uh, I'm going to say Sekiro, Shadows Die Twice for the PC, and Beneath the Tangles posted an article that's part of their series on loneliness. Uh, this one titled Jesus in the Midst of Our Loneliness. So uh, links to all those at ChristianGeekCentral.com. At YouTube.com slash ChristianGeekCentral, by now you should be able to find my uh, the video version of my uh, conversation with Mike Perna of Inroads Ministries about tabletop gaming as a ministry, as well as, by now, my uh, uncut video review of Justice League versus The Fatal Five. And even though there's some crossover in content between this podcast and the, the YouTube channel, the video versions exist in part so you guys can easily share specific content from Christian Geek Central with friends or family. You know, maybe they wouldn't want to sit through the whole podcast or dig through to find my interview with Mike Perna by, you know, you sending them a link to the podcast or something, but uh, you could easily send them a link to that content uh, isolated uh, as it is in, in a video on YouTube. So I hope you'll take advantage of that and like, share, subscribe, and anything else you want to do to help spread this content around to those you think can benefit from it, I'd be very grateful for. Uh, let's see, Christian Geekly news highlights from our Twitter feed at Christian underscore geek include an article by Cap Stewart, who uh, I've featured his articles a few times on this podcast and Christian Geek Central before. I partnered with him once uh, in taking taking one of his articles and sharing it and then using it as a springboard to add my own thoughts to it about you know what's the what's the problem why why should why oh gosh let me actually find hang on a second let me find the title of that video i want to give it to you Okay, the title of the video that I uh, created using his content and adding my own thoughts to it is Why Nudity Should Bother Us. Why Nudity Should Bother Us. And that's over at youtube.com slash christiangeekcentral. But uh, but getting back to uh, the, the article I'm pointing you to now, it's called When High Fantasy Becomes Porn Fantasy, uh, Part 1. And really, I think this article and probably anything that you can find written by Cap Stewart is really not to be missed. I think that Cap Stewart remains a clear and reasonable Christian voice on sexual issues that are starving for exactly that. And very often he's uh, commenting and reacting from uh, sexual issues that are appearing in geek entertainment, geek uh, movies, geek television, and stuff like that. So uh, I think he's definitely somebody that should be on uh, our radar. Untold Podcast. The Untold Podcast has posted a brand new episode introducing the Supersonic Pod comic universe uh, with the preview titled uh, Supersonic Preview, Red, White, and Blue in Tracks. And then I haven't uh, posted or like uh, retweeted anything from the Babylon Bee, which is like a, a Christian spoof news uh, website. And they put up articles primarily. So they, I think they do some video as well. But uh, uh, but this one really had some geek appeal to it. And uh, so I may be in the future kind of pointing you guys to Babylon Bee stuff that has geek appeal because I think they uh, they do some really... Uh, they, they do some really good content. Anyway, this title, the title of this article is Ravi Zacharias Destroys Atheist in Debate with Epic Shoryuken, <laughs> which is like this massive uppercut from the uh, the Street Fighter games, I believe. Anyway, for links to those stories and to stay up to date on the notable news and announcements from the wider world of Christian geekery, follow Christian Geek Central on Twitter at Christian underscore geek. And there's also a really great, like, uh, photo manipulated image <laughs> of Ravi Zacharias doing a Shoryuken, which 
which is worth the click alone. Anyway, um, at patreon.com slash spiritbladeproductions, I've put up a poll asking uh, patrons of any support tier, $1 and up, uh, if they would like me to have my next live stream be a backlog burn, which is, has been for the last couple of years, or to go back to a uh, retro-themed stream. So you still have time until the end of Easter. Uh, the end of Easter Sunday, that poll will be running, and for a dollar, you can jump on board and uh, put your vote in. It is like running neck and neck right now, so you could be casting the decisive vote um, and, and decide uh, what the content of my next live stream is going to be. Um, and then also, uh, I'm interested in hearing uh, suggestions from patrons about what rewards they would like to see more of. So again, if you jump in at the $1 tier, you can be part of that conversation. I have been putting some polls out, asking for feedback. I'm going to continue to do that um, for a couple more weeks, and then I'll be presenting what the new patron uh, reward tiers will be going forward. That'll be a change coming up and that'll take effect in June, but I'll start, um, I'll decide on it well before then and start to uh, promoting it in uh, in May. So anyway, you can be a part of that process of shaping what the rewards and benefits are going to be to to be a patron uh, right now by going over to patreon.com slash spiritbladeproductions and jumping on board at uh, $1 or higher a month. There's a ton of content rolling out all the time from Christian Geek Central, guys. As you may know already, movie and video game reviews. There's an ongoing in-depth Bible study with specific geek application. That combination, by the way, of being an in-depth study of the Bible with specific geek application is a lot more rare than you might uh, think. Um, Christian Geek Industry News, gaming live streams, and a bunch more. And for as little as $1 a month, you can help make sure all that content keeps going and growing in the future and get yourself some exclusive content as well. Again, I want to say I'm so thankful for the support of all of our Spirit Blade insiders. Um, thank you guys. You're making it possible for me to continue in this work day after day, week after week, and and to uh, imagine uh, what kinds of things could be possible in the future as well. For more info, visit patreon.com slash spiritbladeproductions. Okay, that hard, sticky thing you pulled off, that's part of the skull, right? And this pinkish-white stuff is the brain? Yes. Might I suggest an alternative? No, no, listen to me. We can't turn back now. I've got to know what they're thinking. Have you considered talking to them? All right, sew that back on. We'll give it a try. All right, well, I'm sitting here talking to Mike Perna of InroadsMinistries.com. Uh, Mike, welcome. Thanks for carving out time for this. Uh, what is Inroads Ministries, for those who don't know, just in a nutshell? Uh, Inroads Ministries, basically, we are a 501c3 organization, and we work with church and community groups to try and get them to uh, build up or even to see the value in playing games together as an act of not only evangelism, but also discipleship and really just getting together and uh, enjoying each other and growing together in both faith and life. Awesome. And you guys have been, <clears throat> how long have you been like active or online or whatever? Inroads has been active for pretty much about five years now. Okay. Uh, we started out, however, before long before we had ministry aspirations, we were a podcast, uh, which is still going on called Game Store Profits. And in July, that podcast will be eight years old. Sweet. Oh, very cool. Very cool. Yeah, That's we, gonna... we just we just recently, literally just recently as we're recording, released episode 200. So. Sweet. Oh, that's yeah. cool. That's cool kind of milestone to celebrate. 
Um, well, last the reason I wanted to have you on was because in January uh, you posted an article that just really grabbed my attention. I really liked it. It was called Game Day Guidelines, and it's basically uh, guidelines for running a gaming ministry, using games and playing games in a ministry type of context. And, and to paraphrase kind of what you described there is the purpose of the article, you know, you get this question a lot, how do I start a gaming ministry? And you comment, but I, which I think is really great that, you know, people are complicated. And so that complication is why the answer to that question is, you know, not an answer at all, but it's, it's just this processing and the series of questions for yourself and trying to get a little bit closer to discovering what the answer, you know, might be. And so these 10 guidelines um, are based on the uh, what you describe as the essential elements that you build your events around, namely being open to all who want to play, forming and building on relationships that go well beyond the table, mm -hmm. and placing a strong emphasis on the fun of those attending the event over those that are running it. Uh, which right. I think that's like awesome foundational stuff. I used to uh, run a tabletop gaming ministry in a couple different uh, capacities at our church for a few years and just found this list when I got to it, even though I'm not doing that kind of ministry at our church anymore, just so obviously informed by experience, this list. And uh, so I can personally vouch for just the importance of, of these guidelines, and I love the way that you've worded them, too. Um, I'm going to put a link to the list um, where people can get this, uh, this conversation, but I'd like to just briefly go through these guidelines, maybe just spend no more than one minute on uh, each, and I'll read through each one as uh, you guys have written it, and then I'd love to hear about, you know, any supplementary thoughts you have or any experiences that come to mind that are uh, relevant to, to each one of these guidelines. Yeah, absolutely. Everyone is pretty much, if not specifically tied to a, a thing that we've seen, it's philosophically tied to things that we've seen. <laughs> yeah. So I can definitely talk to all of them. Sweet. Okay. So the first one, the no preaching rule must be in effect. It's more important to talk with people than to preach at them. If God is about the business of transforming your life, he'll be in the conversation naturally. You don't have to manufacture that moment. The no preaching rule is literally the first thing I came up with when we started Inroads. Okay. Uh, it is the establishment that unless we tell you otherwise ahead of time, you are not going to hear some kind of sermon or Bible study at our game day. Uh, the reason being is because we don't want to treat the gospel like the sales pitch for a timeshare in Florida. Oh, gosh, yeah. Uh, I spent a lot of years in youth ministry, and you know, looking back on that, I did a lot of bait and switch. Oh, come see cool person, or come to fun event, and oh, by the way, here's 20 minutes of just sitting and listening to me talk about the Bible. Yeah. And it, how, it how effective really was that? <laughs> negatively effective. Oh man! What it meant was was that people would probably never come back. Oh man! Yeah. So yeah, we we do everything we can to deny the Bible bait and switch. <laughs> if we're if we want to talk to you about Jesus, we'll talk to you about Jesus. But if if we're going to give you a sermon, we're going to warn you. Yeah, I love how each one of these guidelines is also kind of a. Uh, an opportunity for self-examination, you know, in this phrase, if God is about the business of transforming your life, 
he'll be in your conversation naturally. You know, if you are mm -hmm. giving yourself over to just like the stretching of the sanctification process, then more than likely every now and then some organic thing is naturally going to come up about what you're going through that's related to your faith. You don't have to, as you say, manufacture that moment. I think that's great. There have been plenty of times when I, I've literally talked to people who don't even kind of care about Jesus, but when they're like, hey, Mike, how's it going? I'm like, well, God's really doing some stuff with me and my family right now or, or, or something along those lines. Like, I don't have to put him there. He yeah. just, it's just there. Yep. All right, number two, all of your tables slash games must be truly open. As long as everyone has come to play the game and conducts themselves in a manner that respects all those there with them, they will all have a place at the table and you will welcome them to it. Yeah, uh, that's just the... I, I don't know how to explain this one because it just seems to me that it's obvious. Mm -hmm. But a lot of times people are like, like, what happens if there are people who are like doing unruly things? I'm like, unless they're like actively going at you. Like if they're like, like knocking yeah. stuff off tables or if they're like cussing in front of kids or something like that, um, unless they're really, really breaking some kind of guideline – this is who you're talking to. Yeah. You need to just be cool with them. And just say, Please, how about you want to come sit and play a game with us? Yeah. Like we, it's fun because we love sharing the gospel. As long as the people we're sharing the gospel with <laughs> act like us already, then, yeah. then we love sharing the gospel. But when they aren't, a lot of times we don't want to deal with them. Mm. And this rule is basically saying, no, seriously, if they want to play, if you're doing this as a ministry and not just getting your buddies together, as long as they're not being disruptive or disrespectful, they got a place at the table. Yeah. Uh, similarly themed, number three, gatekeeping will not be tolerated. No one is better than anyone else for knowing certain strategies or enjoying certain games, nor is anyone lesser for not being deeply involved in the hobby or enjoying other types of games. Yeah, this one is pretty much... It, people People love their games. They love their favorite type of game, and they, they a lot of hardcore gamers who have been in this for a while, people who would call themselves hobby gamers, have games that they don't really look at as quote-unquote real games. Mm. And... A lot of times, it, it, I, I, I talk to people all the time that say, like, I love, like, two to four hour sits. I, I love a game that I sit down and I can watch something grow and develop and this I can watch my army expand. Do you want to know what I play more often than not? Code names. Hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Which is a party game. Yeah. I want I, games that I'm looking for when I'm buying for the ministry are things like Happy Salmon. Hmm where you're acting like an idiot in, around, <laughs> uh, you know, standing in a circle, you know, flapping your hand like a fish. Like, yeah. that's the kind of stuff. Because that's the people I'm reaching. It, are there times that I get my, my big games out? Absolutely. Because that's the person I'm reaching. Yeah. Yeah. So you don't, you can't look at this as, oh, if you're really into games, then you, then this is the game you want. Yeah. Likewise, if somebody's, doesn't know all of the, the terminology or anything like that, don't like make fun of them or, or laugh at them oh, or think geez. that they're not, not really a gamer because they don't know all of that stuff yet. It's yeah. it, again, if they want to come, they need to be there and it's, yeah. it's great. Even if they don't know, you can teach them that stuff. Yeah. 
that's an opportunity, not something to keep them out from. Absolutely. Uh, number four, um, and so a lot of these are just like kind of like social graces type things, you know, which us as geeks can sometimes not be as, you know, as skilled as we could be in, you know. Oh, so, yeah. Like, like, like you said, depending on what type of group you want, I wanted to try and do something universal because people want people want their lists. And so that's yeah. why these are a lot of it is just personal interaction because that's something that is universal regardless of what your game day to accomplish. Yes. Yep. Uh, so number four, your player's backstory is a gift. Everyone's story is worth the telling. No matter what you think of the content, find value in their willingness to share it with you. It may be hard for them to share. Treat it as the gift it is. Wow. Uh, I, I'm a real big fan of story. Even the way we do stuff at conventions, like uh, this past PAX Unplugged, I walked around as a dwarf bard hearing people's stories. Oh, wow, nice. And and that was the ministry mm. of that day. And it was really amazing to see the looks on people's faces when when you're like, I want to hear your story. And they're mm. like, well, I don't really have one. I said, no, you do. I'm here to hear it. Whatever you want to tell me, I want to hear it. Wow. And and just that simple interaction was so powerful to people mm. because there are, especially those of us who do consider ourselves geeks and nerds and stuff like that, even as geek culture has been on the rise with all the, the Marvel movies and all that stuff, um, even that, geeks still feel geeky and don't always feel yeah. like... The, you know, the widely accepted people. Yeah. So the idea that somebody wants to honestly hear about who they are and what they care about, that's, that's a beautiful thing. And it's important to, to, that that's a part of what you're doing. Yeah, I'm of the mind that like even though things which were once categorized as geeky are becoming more popular, being a geek, if you look at the etymology of the word, still is something that is not mainstream. So maybe it's the degree to which you enjoy these certain things that makes you a geek. But there's something, you know, as geeks, almost by definition, we feel and are a bit outside of the mainstream and that can make it difficult to want to share. And so having a, an inviting person like that who's willing to listen is awesome. And, you know, you make this great point, no matter what you think of the content, you know. Mm-hmm. Year, years ago, I started just, and now it's a little bit more of a natural part of my uh, just conversation style, but I started incorporating the non-committal mm when you're yes. listening to somebody, you know. Yep. And and I, I probably used it already a little bit in this interview. It's not saying I, I like what I'm hearing. It's not saying I don't like what I'm hearing. It's not it's not judging. It's not saying I support or, you know, re- I acknowledge reject. that I have heard this but, thing. Yes, I've heard this thing and you can communicate through an mm that like you care about this person and you care about even if you know they've they've gotten themselves in a mess of a situation and you're thinking to yourself man you know if they would have been wise they could have blah 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 or whatever you know the case is you know that mm I think is is a lot of times the best thing that you can do in that moment to so they feel loved and listened to um Let's see here. Number uh, five, know and value your players. It's important to be listening to your players, giving them your full attention whenever possible. Engage them, ask questions, and learn who they are as individuals. Uh, this is basically the short you know, summarization of the act of active listening. Hmm. The idea that when a person is talking to you, 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 you if you can, like, 
especially if you're running an event, stuff's happening. You can't always give everybody 100% attention. Yeah. But whenever possible that you stop, that you look at them, that you ask the questions, that you repeat what they're saying so that they know that you heard them, like mm -hmm. that sort of thing. It, it, it kind of feeds off of some of the previous stuff that was on the list, but it's this just the idea that um, – the fact that you're having a conversation with them as, you know, you're already in another game over here or, you know, you're, <laughs> you're dealing with the food situation or, yeah. or whatever. It's, it's the idea that when a person really wants to be talking to you, they deserve your attention. Hmm. Yeah. Because it's, it's about providing that moment where it's like, like, no, seriously, I care about what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. And communicating that to them. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I think that this, these, once again, another heart check moment. If you find yourself like feeling like, I don't care about this person, I don't care about what they're saying, they're boring me out of my mind, maybe take that as a cue to like do some heart examination. God, why, why don't I care about this person? What's going on mm -hmm. in me that I don't feel any compassion for this person? I find them to be irritating or boring or whatever. You know, these are all great heart check types of guidelines. Because well, it, it's, it's a kind of moment where we can just be like, Nobody likes everybody. Let's just be honest. Yeah, yeah. It's just, we're, we're different. But at the same point, it, it challenges us to see the value in this person who is also crafted in the image of God. Yeah, yep. Um, number six, respect a person's boundaries slash concerns. Never disregard a player's concerns or frustrations with game content or theme, interactions with other players, etc. Every comment may not need a direct response, but no one should walk away feeling like they haven't been heard. There's a lot of, of great things going on in the gaming community right now when people are talking about representation, when people are talking about some of the not-so-pleasant things that have happened in the past, uh, talking about uh, the, the vibe at the table, but also even just the content of the games themselves. Um, I had a very interesting conversation with some people. Uh, there's a game called Manitoba, and there was a lot of the big controversy when that game first came out because it's like y'all put teepees in this game you put uh totem poles in this game the people you're talking about don't do either of those mm. Mm. and you know what we what you find and that's just one example but there's lots like that okay and there's a, this pushback that says oh i don't why do we care about like who cares man mm. Mm. Or when somebody's like, hey, I like, especially, again, this is just one example, but it's the most prominent one. When women are like, I don't feel comfortable being at your event because of the things that are said and the jokes that are shared or whatever. It's real easy for people to be like, oh, just, just, you know, ease up. They don't mean anything by that. Not cool. Uh, you have to appreciate the fact that no matter what you think of their concerns, you need to address their concerns to the point that you you can say, "I want to deal with this." It's conflict resolution. It's it's getting yeah. in there and being like, "No, no, no matter what I think about this, it's causing you to be uncomfortable, and you don't want to be here. We need to fix this." Yeah. Number seven is um, I almost see it as like a a cornerstone of this entire list because of what it kind of gets at, mm -hmm. you know, and that is play for players 
rather than yourself. If you aren't, pre I love this, if you aren't prepared to never play your favorite game again, you aren't ready to do gaming as a ministry. You should be creating the best experience for the players you have, not the ones you want. That is literally a, a question that I ask anybody who says they want to volunteer with us. I have literally lost track of the number of times I've said, are you prepared to never play your favorite game again? Hmm. And I'll even sometimes tie it to my own experience. I said, my top 10 games. There's this thing in board gaming called the 10 by 10 challenge. Take 10 games and play it 10 times throughout the year. Okay. I did a 10 by one challenge last year where I took my top 10 current favorite games and I wanted to play them each once in a year. Hmm. I did not succeed. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and that is because most of the gaming, that not all, but most of the gaming I do is outwardly focused. It's yeah. why when I want to be playing Scythe, again, I'm playing Happy Salmon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that, yeah. it, when your focus is other people, and that's what, if, if you're gaming as ministry, your gaming is focused on other people, that's what you do. Absolutely. I, I remember when uh, uh, about, I don't know, about a, a month or two into uh, running like a gaming ministry event at, at our church, I realized, oh, you know what, Peter, you might not be able to play even, you know, you might yeah. spend the night making sure that everyone's connected to a game, because I noticed that if I'm, if, if everyone shows up at like 7.10, the event starts at 7, you know, and then you all get in on the same game, great, but then someone comes in at 7.45, mm -hmm. and this is like, this is like an hour or two hour game, what are they going to do? So I just realized I need to you know, keep myself free and, you know, often not even play so I can just help others play and welcome other people and be able to give them my attention if they do have to wait for just a little while or start a game with them or whatever. So, yeah, that's so, so insightful. So insightful, number seven. Uh, number eight, the table is the start of your work, not the whole. The relationships you build around the experience of playing together open doors for the powerful work you will see in their lives. If your players never see you outside of the context of a game, you are missing it. Uh, one of the most popular responses when people who don't think of, that this is even this is even on the radar, one of the most popular responses is, "Oh, so you just you just play games with people?" Hmm. And part of my internal thing is to suppress the idea of saying, "Yeah, that's what I do." <laughs> <laughs> What's just about that? Um, yeah. But a lot of it is it's the idea that the games themselves, they're great. I love them. I have a lot of them, and there are a lot more that I want that I don't have because they're just really interesting bits of stuff and design, and it's yeah. really cool to see a good one come together. But I can play a truly terrible game with a group of people that I love, and it makes that game good. Hmm. And the reason that is is because of those relationships. Those relationships, if they're only tied to the game, if you're playing, if your ministry is about playing this game and and just that's it, you're just playing the game, man, you can have so much more fun just getting a couple of your buddies together and playing the games you want to play. <laughs> like yeah. there, are, there are way better ways to do that if you're not <laughs> if. if just playing is what you're looking for. Yeah. But 
the reason we play these games is to build the relationships so that we can have those moments. So we, that we have those moments that communicate the gospel, that we have yeah. those moments that grow people, that we can have those moments to use the, the really churchy way to speak into the lives of others. That yeah. that's what we're doing this for. It's foundational, not entirety. <laughs> yep. Yep. Uh, number nine, no alpha gaming allowed. Whether your players are new to the game or not, no one appreciates unsolicited advice. Always ask if new players would like advice slash help before offering and assure them their play is always their decision. I have lost track of the number of times I've heard people complain about playing cooperative games because they've had their own horror stories of somebody coming in and they didn't actually get to play because this other guy was <sighs> doing it. The biggest offender is Pandemic, but that's mostly because Pandemic is the most widespread cooperative game experience. So many people... I love cooperative games. One of my favorites is Spirit Island, which is an amazing game. But so many people don't want to play them because they they remember that time when when Bobby over there just took over and and instead of allowing them to play, was like, you need to move here and do this. You're doing this. The next turn, you're going to do this. Oh man! And at that point, you're not even playing a game. We're like, Bobby, just do your thing, man. Yeah. <laughs> you're playing solo mode. We're just here watching. Like, Ugh. um, but yeah. So that and the the other part, the the part B to that, is that I always ask. Like, it's it's not that you can't instruct, because a lot of if you're if you want to run a gaming ministry, you love games. You play games, and there's stuff that you pick up just by the sheer number of times you play a game that the person who's never heard of that game before just doesn't know. But yeah. that that's why I always say, you can ask, you can say, hey, I see a really good move for you right now because I know how to play this game really well. Mm-hmm. Do you want me to give you that? Yeah. Because some people, if they're, if they're new to gaming at all and don't know how to think strategically... Yes, please, show me that. I have no idea what I'm doing. Please show yeah. me. But somebody who's yeah. been around games themselves but just don't know that one. Yeah. Like, no, dude, I'm, I'm figuring it out. I'm all right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And number 10, um, teach players how to beat you. If presented with an opportunity to teach new players, if presented with an opportunity to teach new players how to beat you, be ready to do so should the player want you to. This encourages strategic play and lets them know the experience of playing is more important to you than beating them. There is an app that was, that as soon as it became available, was really popular called Board Game Stats. Um, okay. One of the few paid apps I have on my phone. Okay. And part of the reason that I, I did is because I love numbers and it's fun to be like, I played X number of games. I won this many times. I lost this many times. I played most games with four people. Whatever. I love that stuff. <laughs> okay. But part of the reason I got it was to prove to people that I hardly ever win. Hmm. Because people just have this assumption. You run these things. You must win all the time. And I'm like, no. And part of it is because people gang up on me because they think I'm good. <laughs> but, yeah. but the other part is is that I want people to get good at the game so that they enjoy themselves. Yeah. I want them to learn the kind of things that I've learned playing this game. And a lot of that means if I want them to be good at the game, I'm going to need to teach them the right move. 
whether or not that right move hurts me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, you talked about in, in a lot of these how a lot of them are based on just introspection and figuring out your own stuff. This is my humility check. Hmm. If you have to win to feel you had a good experience, mm. do not do this. Yeah, yeah. Do not do yeah. this. Uh, you can play games all you want, but do not do it as ministry because mm. eventually no one's going to want to play with you. Yeah, yeah. And this is just the idea that you are are bringing them along. A, a good teacher wants to the person they're teaching to be better than them. I want to, you to go past where I've gone. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, that, that means looking at them going, Oh, I don't want to tell you what I'm going to tell you because it's going to ruin everything in my life, but <laughs> you're going to want to move here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. This is, I mean, this whole list is great. And I think that these are, um, such a great starting point. I mean, they're both practical for ministry. And honestly, I think that they're a good test of our own hearts and our valuable things to be thinking about, even when you're just playing, you know, with your normal gaming group, I, you know, and have, to, to at least. I did have a couple people who, after I posted it and after it got shared around quite a bit, a handful of people were like, seriously, even if you're not talking about ministry, even if you're not talking about faith like i had a couple people who aren't even christians be like no seriously man there's some good stuff in here (laughs) yeah yeah so thanks for putting that list together thanks for coming here and talking with me about it and unpacking things a little bit um is there a way that people can follow you online or is there anything you want to plug there is plenty of ways to find us online most of it is just looking up inroads i-n-n roads uh ministries pretty much on twitter i'm inroads instagram inroads uh as far as anything that I can plug, we have a couple different podcasts, Game Store Profits. Uh, I also do, it's been on a bit of a hiatus because of scheduling and family relations because I have a one-year-old now. Um, <laughs> but hopefully, my, my goal, I have some things outlined. Hopefully, it's coming back in the very near future. I have a devotional podcast called The Barden Bible, which is a story-based uh, devotional where I don't really preach or teach. It's really just we're going to talk about some stories and how that works. Cool. Um, we recently just wrapped up a uh, actual play, a Dungeons and Dragons actual play podcast with the folks from another podcast that we love called the Min Max podcast. Okay, nice. Uh, we just finished that up. Uh, it's called the Glass Dagger, and it's okay. We're using that to unveil a new channel, which probably won't be consistent content, just because it's only going to be stuff that is like this, but we're doing an actual play podcast called the Inroads Plays Podcast. So anytime we do stuff like that with with the folks at MinMax, anytime we run any kind of uh, gaming stuff like that, we're going to put it on there, and we're we're literally just unveiling that. Now, won't be consistent content, but man, when the content does show up there, it's going to be great, so you might want to put that on your podcatcher of choice. Nice. Cool. Well, thank you again. And uh, to anybody that's interested in uh, tabletop gaming, be sure to check out inroadsministries.com. Thank you for having me. All right. Yeah, my pleasure. The truth will set you free. Truth is that which corresponds to fact or reality. To assert that truth is not absolute is a self-defeating proposition. Lots of things are possible. 
but our beliefs should reflect the best explanation of the available evidence. I'm no expert, but the information is out there. You'd be amazed what you can learn if you spend some time in search of truth. The truth will set you free. Well, normally, I would uh, take some time to attempt to examine the Bible specifically and dissect some of the churchy language that we can easily take for granted, digging into history and languages when I'm able to try and get at the heart of the text so we can hopefully see and apply some of what God has for us in uh, the words of Scripture today. Um, That's not something I'm going to do today. This is going to be a little bit more off the cuff. Um, As a reminder, as I always say, I'm not formally trained in Scripture. I'm just a guy using resources and a questioning mind to try and get at the truth. That's something that we can all do, so I hope you'll do that with me. That process, I think, also involves, you know, if we're going to actually live out and not just be academic about this, it involves reflecting on our own lives and reflecting on what Scripture says about the things that we are thinking about or haunted by or or puzzling through, you know. Um, And so this week, you know, we've been leading up to Easter And our church had an event called Stations of the Cross. It's a tradition that many churches uh, kind of do. It's uh, something that's intended to uh, help you reflect on the events of the crucifixion and uh, sometimes the resurrection as well, depending on how, you know, they, they want to do it. Um, and you, you're walking from one setup station to the next, and there's maybe some scripture to read or some things to meditate on. And it's just a, a way to kind of more intentionally take time out to really process um, the events of the crucifixion and resurrection and their meaning for us today. And uh, so in the midst of that, I uh, just kind of was reacting to some of the things that, that came out of that experience for me this week. Um, and one one of the uh, the the pastors at our church, who was the key pastor in you know bringing to this uh, the stations of the cross together, um, made an observation in the, because the stations this year were based on specifically uh, the Gospel of John and its account of the crucifixion and resurrection, and um, and it, that was our worship pastor, uh, and she observed that uh, in John's Gospel the angels appeared. In the tomb after Jesus' resurrection, at the head and foot specifically of Jesus' resting place, it specifically mentions one at the head and one at the at the foot. And uh, you know, you kind of wonder well, why why bother presenting that detail. And uh, the observation she made, which she wasn't the first to make this observation, but I was really appreciated that she brought it to uh, the, the stations and to my attention this year, is is that it it parallels the angels that were placed on each end of the mercy seat in the old covenant. Um, and, uh, that was really interesting to me just in thinking about God creating this moment here, this symbolic moment, you know, and, uh, and how God is a storyteller in, in a sense, in, in a sense that's like much more real than any of us are storytellers. You know, I love stories that in addition to being enjoyable also have meaningful and moving themes and symbolism. And as storytellers, uh, we can do that in our books or other fiction we might create, um, or we just, you know, consume, you know, uh, other fiction, other stories. And, uh, it's, it's really, you know, easy for storytellers to do that because the characters have no free will. They're just these imagined things and we make them do whatever we want to tell the story that we want. But somehow God tells his amazing stories. He creates these, he brings about these events that uh, are played out in the real world and have this major symbolism attached to them. 
but they're played out by people who are making very real choices, you know, um, sometimes bad choices. Now, these angels here, they would have been willing participants in God creating, you know, that symbolic moment to reinforce what Jesus had done and his sacrifice, you know, acting as the, the, the place of atonement, you know, for our sins. But it did get me thinking about how God uses real people and their choices and actions, even their evil ones, to tell the story that he wants to tell. I mean, consider that Jesus was crucified at the same time that the lambs were being slaughtered for the annual Passover, which Israel observed each year to commemorate God's rescue uh, of them out of slavery in Egypt. That original sacrifice protected them from God's justly deserved wrath that passed through Egypt that night, bringing death. Uh, It was a male lamb that was sacrificed without defect, whose blood was spread over the entrance to each home to show that they were trusting in this God-ordained sacrifice to keep them from God's wrath. Uh, paralleling that, Jesus was a male, he was a man, he was without defect, he lived a sinless life, he was blameless when they killed him, and his lifeblood, given up for us as God's ordained sacrifice, is what we place our trust in to be spared the punishment that we each deserve. The hypocritical religious leaders of Jesus' day thought they were killing him and getting him out of their hair. They planned out the timing of his capture and the crucifixion of their own free will, you know, that was, that was like a plan that was in motion for a long time <laughs> leading up to that. Um, but Jesus knew that it was all going exactly according to plan. And he gave himself over to that plan, trusting that it, that it would be worth it. And that trust, I think it's worth pointing out, was real. We can tell from scripture that Jesus did not take advantage of his divine omniscience before his resurrection, certainly not as like a default. I think that there's times where we see that the father seemed to be revealing things to him, but his status quo was not one where like he was omniscient. Um, He wasn't taking advantage of his omniscience, I should say. We get into, you know, a little bit of like uh, theoretical talk in terms of how that all worked. So, you know, uh, uh, forgive me and and don't mince words, you know, (laughs) I'm talking here as, you know, kind of loosely. But, you know, he had to learn from scripture, Jesus, and he had to trust God in essentially the same way we do. Some even suggest uh, that Jesus initially figured out who he was by examining his circumstances and comparing them to scripture rather than some, you know, convenient inner voice from the father. Um, There was a moment where the father said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. But I'm talking about before that leading up to that, Um, that uh, it's believed by many that he, uh, because of the way he took on humanity and abstained from taking advantage of a number of his divine advantages, he had to figure out who he was through scripture and learning and being taught and and uh, being committed to scripture, being committed to seeking truth. And um, so my point is that Jesus knew what it was like to be in the midst of a seemingly chaotic situation in which he was the victim. And he had to, in the midst of that, learn to trust God and the story that God was telling through this seeming chaos that uh, seemed uh, at a glance to have no purpose. You and I aren't being crucified this weekend, but there's a chance that you're facing something really difficult right now. Or maybe you're looking at your life and wondering, why is this not playing out the way that I imagined or hoped that it would? You might be asking, what is the point 
of this. I can only imagine that's what Jesus' followers were saying to each other or thinking to themselves after burying him. The Bible jumps pretty quickly, you might notice, to the resurrection narrative compared to how long it spends on the drawn-out um, torture and crucifixion of Jesus. It relatively quickly, after his death, uh, moves on to the, the resurrection. But his followers spent days and nights sitting in the hopeless aftermath of his death. Um, part of the Stations of the Cross that we went through was this dark hallway with three lit signs that took a little while to walk past them, and they just said, Jesus is dead. Jesus is dead. Jesus is dead. And so the process just forced us to kind of sit in that um, as uh, reflecting what the disciples would have had to sit in, still wondering why, what, what is going on? Why did this happen? You know, um, other people in God's story, you know, hundreds of years before then, um, ha- spent years wondering what was going on and why God was allowing things to happen. You know, I think, of course, of, of Joseph. But in the end, um, the real life story God is telling makes it worth it. And if we're ever tempted to see God as kind of like a cold puppet master, it's just like, you know, oh, trust me, children, I know it hurts, but it'll be worth it. You know, I mean, I, I think sometimes God can be so hard to wrap our heads around that it's hard to imagine his compassion for us when we are, you know, really trying to at the same time consider a number of his divine attributes that attributes that just make him so far beyond what we can fathom. And I think it's times like that, when we are tempted to see God as this cold, removed puppet master, that's when it's important to remember Jesus. That's when it's important to reflect on the fact that he lived this 30-plus years of life and then had this horrible, horrible end to that life. To remember that he, he was God himself, so God is not a cold, removed puppet master. He gave up the safety of that position and the benefits of it and entered into the worst possible moments of the story God is telling. Jesus, experientially, from experience, knows your pain and he knows your wondering. And he also knows that it's worth it. And he subjected himself to the worst of it all. He loves you. He hates the pain, loneliness, or emptiness that you are feeling. And he is preparing a place for you that, dang it, is going to make it all more than worth it. You can believe that God, when he sees what you're going through, is angered and disgusted and saddened and saying, I'm going to make it worth it. You better believe I'm going to make it worth it. You know, I am not going to just let this be. Um, that's what he's preparing. He's preparing something where when you and I reach it, this story that we are struggling through is finally going to make sense. And all that you do right now to continue willingly trusting in him will enhance the beauty and payoff for that turn of events he's preparing. He is the biggest storyteller in the universe. And Although the choices and brokenness of this world can make it seem chaotic and out of control, God is amazingly using it all to do something greater than we can imagine. Something that, dang it, is going to be worth it. Um, as Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 4, 11-18 in the ESV, he says, 
For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. So we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. That's why the resurrection is important, because it it shows how God can use the broken world we live in to bring about the best possible outcome. It's the reason we can have hope. If you haven't been to a church in a while, I want to encourage you to visit one this Sunday for Easter, or whatever the next Sunday might be when you hear this. The healthy, local, biblical church is where we find the love and support that helps us genuinely experience the hope of the resurrection. On our own, it can easily just be a nice idea that maybe we're moved by momentarily, but walking with, sharing with, and learning from others in biblical church community is how the resurrection changes from a, from a nice idea to uh, something that changes our lives and brings us into something that day by day is a more happy, hopeful, and fulfilling way of living. Uh, If you'd like some help finding a good church in your area, then I want to help you do that if I can. Online resources and communities, those are good supplements, but they can't speak to your particular situation like relationships in a local church can. The context for almost everything in the New Testament already assumes that we are serving and building purposeful relationships in a local church, and it should be read and understood in that context. And if not, then we're missing it. We're, we're, We're not going to benefit from the Word of God outside of the context of the local church near in the way, um, you know, than doing it by ourselves. So whether you're in a a church that just kind of seems to lack Bible-based intentionality, or maybe you're not attending any church at all, if I can help you get connected to an authentic, compassionate, Bible-oriented church, I want to do that. You can email me at p-a-e-t-e-r at spiritblade.com, and we can try to look at some websites of churches in your area together. My uh, birthday last week, uh, I got uh, several birthday wishes from you guys, and one from uh, John Wilkerson, who, as part of another email, just added on, by the way, 40 is the new 21. Relax, man. You have an awesome family, strong faith, and many friends who are praying for you. Um, thank you so much, John, and all of you guys who gave me uh, birthday wishes. Uh, it's been a good year of processing. I turned 40 last year, and so uh, last week I turned 41, and uh in all of that, in the last year and approaching 41, and since then, you know, there have been both weighty and sobering thoughts and also, like, rich gratitude. And I've, I've commented on that a few times before, I think. 
And the place I'm at is if that's what midlife, quote unquote, brings, then hey, count me in. You know, God is working. I'm hopeful about what he'll do. And uh, thank you guys so much for your your prayer and support. Um, What else? Feedback, I guess. Um, (laughs) That was kind of feedback. No, no, wait, no. Yeah, no, the feedback. This is the part of the script. Okay, so I do, yeah. All right, feedback, feedback. <laughs> uh, any thoughts that are on your mind, guys, about this podcast, Christian Geek Central, the YouTube channel, or anything else we're doing? Um, what should we keep or change? Or maybe what's on your mind you'd like a potentially uninformed opinion on? Uh, I want to make this show and all of Christian Geek Central as fun and useful as I can. But i got to hear from you to do that. You can send me an email or audio file recorded on your phone to P-A-E-T-E-R at Spiritblade. Dot com. Um, I think that's about it. I want to thank Mike Perna again and Inroads Ministries um, for <clears throat> having that great conversation with me that I was able to share with you guys. Stay tuned after the credits for DS9 Shawarma with Matt McKinney of POSTOS or jump back to episode 400 if you'd like to start from the beginning. As a reminder, you can find episodes 0 through 500 of this podcast archived as the Spirit Blade Underground Podcast at spiritblade.com. Next week, if God allows it anyway, I will be sharing my thoughts on Avengers Endgame. Can you believe it? Oh my gosh. Um, That came... A little faster, maybe, than I thought I would. Uh, Till then, please consider supporting the work of Christian Geek Central and Spirit Blade Productions and earning some fun rewards by becoming a Spirit Blade Insider of any subscription tier at patreon.com slash Productions. You can also help this work by leaving a positive review of the Christian Geek Central podcast on iTunes or other podcast services. Just one or two sentences is all it takes, and it's a great way to help us grow and offer more content to more people. Thank you so much for making time for this show. I hope you have a great week and that you'll join me next time here on the Christian Geek Central podcast as we continue to geek out and seek the truth. The Christian Geek Central podcast is a community supported endeavor of Spirit Blade Productions. This podcast is produced by Peter Fremson with support from the Christian Geek Central community at ChristianGeekCentral.com. For information about the latest entertainment and resources from Spirit Blade Productions, visit SpiritBlade.com. Thank you for listening. Something's coming through the wormhole. The Dominion has endured for 2,000 years and will continue to endure long after the Federation has crumbled into dust. No! Five years ago, no one had ever heard of Bejor or Deep Space Nine, and now all our hopes rest here. And that was Shadows and Symbols, part two of the two-part premiere of season seven, where we wrap up everything from the first part and kind of set things up for the rest of the season. Um, what I... was your nickname title for it? And I'm coming with you. Yes. That's that's the theme of this show, basically, is one person has an important mission and other people come along to be their load. Yes. Um, For okay. example, Cisco has an important mission. Yeah, if you remember, he got that vision. He's going to go to Tyree, wherever Tyree is. They never explain. We see it has two sons, so it's, it's basically Tatooine as far yes, as the way it works. Yeah. The loose end and all that. It just, it's never... I guess in his vision he knew it was Tyree because sometimes when you have a dream you just know something even though it doesn't make sense with what you're seeing. I can accept that, but they never even say where Tyree is. Is it? And the fact that there were, it looks like it's the same area of desert where they filmed an original series episode and 
in a different episode, but also in a very desert place, there was a character who was a leader of his world named Tyree. So it makes you wonder, was this that same planet named after him? Is it a colony of that planet? Is that just pure coincidence? You know, it makes me wonder, and they never paid it off. Minor quibble, I know. Basically, Sis goes on his quest to find the magic treasure. And he is loaded down with Jake, his son. Who's, who's Cable? He's not really being a load. Uh, his dad. Who He's he's uh, he's a good guy, but he is old, yeah, so he's, he's a load because he just physically can't handle. He's an handle. old guy with a bad heart, so he's, he's just not physically able to keep up a lot. And our new Dax host, Ezri. And we, we, we mentioned Singer. She, her, she showed up at the very end of the first part. And Ezri Dax is very different from Jadzia Dax because she was a troll who never wanted to be joined. And uh, she was given the Dax symbiote. She was on the starship that was taking it back to the troll homeworld after Dax had died. And there was some sort of a medical problem with the symbiote. And so they had to find a troll host. That in and of itself makes enough sense. It's like, okay, well, I, I'm, you know, she. it's an interesting idea. It's the, the, the host who didn't want to be a host. But the problem is, the very first episode of TNG where we saw the trill, and the whole thing about having a symbiote inside you and all that, is we found out that for a short time, anyone can be a host to a trill. Not even just, uh, not even just other hosts, or other trill. Because Will Riker had one for a few days. And what was weird is that episode also, it was very different because he was basically possessed by this thing. He didn't have a mixed personality. So obviously a lot of rules change, but you'd think they'd at least mention that since that's an established fact that a non-trill can carry this thing. Because you pick the one person who had actually decided not to have a, a trill symbiont, and the one person who would be permanently biologically changed by this, to where, just like in the, way back in Season 2 with Dax... Uh, when you take out the, the symbiote, the host will die. Which obviously did not happen with Will Riker. And it's just, it's kind of like the episode that episode rejoined, where they just, they never really explain, the, the Trill culture seems to be whatever we need at the moment for this story. Whatever the writers want it to be this week. It's like, are they, are they so fixated on their Trills having new experiences that they will literally let a Trill go off and be abandoned and die if they break that taboo? If so, then why does Ezri, why is she allowed to come right back to her old job, to the same station with all her old friends, including her, her widowed husband? And it, it, or are, are you allowed... If you're not allowed to to you know re reassimilate with your old life at all, why would she not order to do something different? And nothing about it holds together very well. Um, uh, second subplot is Worf is on his mission to get Jadzia's soul into Stovacor, the Klingon that, heaven. That's right. We've got a long distance battle dedication to Jadzia Dax. So, um, in order to do that, they have to win a great battle in her honor, essentially. And Bashir wants to come along because he cared for Dax. Um, okay, fair enough. O'Brien's going to come along because he cares for his friend. Okay, fair enough. Quark's going to come along because we need comic relief. And literally, O'Brien and Bashir are running panels and O'Brien's doing the techno babble. He's the only one who really seems necessary. But O'Brien, but Bashir's at least, he's doing sensor work. He's doing something. Quark is literally sitting around complaining about everything. He's just kind of standing around the bridge making snarky commentary. And he's the utter load. And really, his only purpose in the story is to be so obnoxious that it finally makes Worf snap at everyone and then come back and apologize saying, you know, I feel bad because what this is is 
I wanted I wanted to be the only person in Dax's life that mattered. I was, but lo and behold, oh lo and behold, she had friends that she cared about. Yeah, that, that Worf was jealous of the affection that Jadzia had for people. The non-romantic affection. Yeah, that he, he basically wanted her all to himself. So it's like their their attempt at character building kind of is almost like character assassinating, really. Yeah. Because it turns Worf into this majorly insecure dork. Um, but as usual, Martok gives him the, the proper shut up and get in line, you moron Martok speech. Martok is the best Klingon. And so they, they do their, and their mission is, it's a nice touch. Next Generation had a, a Klingon Civil War. Worf's brother did this move where you, you technobabble some magical beams into the sun, and it makes a giant solar flare that takes out your enemies. That's exactly what it did here, but they took out an entire shipyard. And because of a quick scene with Wayun and Damar, we found out it's a very critical shipyard. In fact, it was a shipyard not even building enough ships already. So we just really laid waste to a lot of the Dominion's short-term plans, at least, by taking this thing completely out. Although it does make you wonder why, uh, why more shipyards aren't being built, aren't being destroyed, you know, why Klingons aren't doing this all the time, if this seems to be a Klingon thing. I mean, I was just thinking, if you, if you were playing some sort of an RTS where you could have characters who could go to a sun and, like, you know, wipe out just a large swath yeah, of space. Yeah, you spam that super move all yeah, the time. Yeah, I would. Because uh, it doesn't, the, the only risk, it seems, is that you have to come really close to the sun, and it was very hot, and it, but anyway. Well, and if, if, you, if I've got to throw a bird of prey away for that, I'd do it. Yeah, yeah, even if it costs a bird of prey, and if any culture is going to be all, all for suicide runs, it's going to be the Klingons. The third plot is, if you remember, uh, in the first part, uh, the Romulans have have been put have put a hospital on a station, but then they loaded that station down with a bo- whole bunch of plasma torpedoes, uh, and the Bajorans decide, <coughs> excuse me, that that's unacceptable because you're an you're an alien force sitting in our territory, basically with nukes on our doorstep. Yeah, we want your nukes off our moon. Yes, and so it comes down to a blockade standoff, playing chicken. And I will say one thing is the plots line up nicely. The Klingon plot is its own thing. It does not tie into anything. But still, they time out the, the climaxes nicely. And well, that's standard similar, storytelling. They have a similar sort of tension in the Kira plot as in the Cisco plot because both of them at the same time are essentially being encouraged by others. Others are telling them what you are doing is foolish and has no chance of success just quit. Well, to be Just fair, quit. to be fair, the Klingon one was that too because their first attempt failed, and it was like we're getting hot. We need to get out of here. And in the same one, Worf, Cisco, and Kira all decide no. We will stay despite what common sense tells me, for the sake of what's important. And which goes back to Cisco and what I think is probably the strongest part of this episode mm-hmm. is you know through through magic and wandering around throwing the baseball etc because he brought his baseball with him he, and it turns out to be the the symbol for how he figures out where the the treasure is the 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 eight, the lost eighth orb that will unlock the the stalemate going on inside the wormhole uh so he goes and he starts digging, and of course he's digging through soft sand, like through a sandbox. Not hard-packed dirt or anything, but oh, whatever. And so he digs, and he finds the orb. It's, it's that easy, which is good, because I, you know, this really isn't like Frodo and Sam and Mordor, and it's about the, the physical struggle. It is all going to be about the emotional struggle, and luckily the emotional struggle is where it's at, because suddenly he's in a vision. And if you remember back to Far Beyond the Stars, when Benny, when Ben suddenly became Benny Russell, the 1940s uh, sci-fi writer, 
now we see the sequel to that story, which is Betty Russell has now been uh, um, committed to an insane asylum, and he's been writing the story on his wall. And in comes the doctor, and what's awesome is, Kim didn't notice this, but the doctor is Damar. Which is a nice follow-up, because the two corrupt racist cops from that from Far Beyond the Stars were Wei-Yoon and Dukat. So now, there's another one who's an antagonist in this. The, the, the evil psycho- psychologist is Damar. And I didn't see it at first, but if you close your eyes and just listen to him and don't look at him, you can hear it. Yeah. And, uh... And basically, he is trying to convince Cisco to give up on this delusion about the prophets and Captain Cisco and all of that. And so he actually gives him a thing of paint and says, "Paint over the story on the wall." And Cisco starts actually going along with it in real life. And here's the one thing Ezra does that's useful: is she says, "Remember when you promised Jadzia you were going to make things right?" And it's a very emotional moment until you stop and realize Cisco said that to Jadzia's body in her coffin. The slug had been taken out of her. So even if you could say the slug might have heard that, the slug was by this time the slug was probably having a problem getting inserted into Ezri as we speak. Yeah, it's like there's no there's no possible way that Ezri should know this information unless either a you want to say it's more profit magic, which it wouldn't be in the case of Ezri, or b Cisco at some point on the journey told her. But there's no implication. Then why would you say, why, remember when he promised Jadzia? Wouldn't it be, remember when he promised me? So it, it's, it, it's, a, it's a cheat. But he resists. And then we find out. And so he, he opens up the orb. And we, we free up. And the wormhole opens up again. And that's what gives Kira the courage to see her bluff through. She's like, yeah, she clearly regards this as a sign from the prophets. And, 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 it, and it plays out very well. Because it feels very authentic and right. And then we get what I think is one of the stupidest things in all Deep Space Nine. All all the way back in Emissary, the prophets didn't know who Cisco was. And, uh, you know, he explained the whole idea of being corporeal and cause and effect. And they did not understand cause and effect or anything like that. Because they don't live in linear time. Yeah. Yeah. And yet, they put all these steps in. Step one, step two, step three. This whole linear event in motion by possessing a woman and eugenically breeding... Uh, ben Cisco to be their emissary. They actually possess this woman that he's been having visions that was his natural mother, and uh, uh, Joseph Cisco fell in love with her, married her, and then when, once he was born, she left, or, or the prophet left, and so here she is married to someone she never chose, and so she left him. And it's like all that weirdness, and all of, all it is is saying because you were meant to be here. And And you don't need that. They've retconned this whole thing away from Ben Sisko being the right person at the right time who was able to communicate with the prophets into being a long-destined and planned chosen one, which I think is a mistake. Major step back. Inferior storytelling device. Well, and it reminds me of the How to Train Your Dragon movies, where the first movie was very cool. The lesson was, if you stop and look at something and study and learn, you can pick something up and you can... And it's like, it's a very inclusive message that anyone can do this if you take the time and learn. We see these montages where he's learning how dragons do their things and all that. And the second one, he finds his mother and she says, oh, well, I've always had a good win. You inherited my trade about dragon magic. 
And it, it completely yeah. ruined that message because instead of being about wisdom and intelligence and knowledge and perseverance and all these traits that it's people about, can do. just be born the chosen yeah, one. That's your, yeah, that's your virtue is be born, come out of the right bottom end of a woman. And it's just, it's insulting. And it, it, the thing is, nothing ever comes of this. Cisco was already the emissary. This has been established. We had episodes that prove this. We know that he's in that position, but instead of being in that position because he made wise choices or is, you know, or even just by happen to be the one who ran into them, instead he was planned all along. And so now we can't relate to him. Now we can't understand because this was what was destined from the beginning. And it's a very, very weak, lazy way to make something sound more important than it is. Well, and then... Once you say, oh, you were de- you were always destined to be this, then it becomes a, well, then what does what I do matter? Yeah. It becomes a question of, you know, what what's the point of my decisions Yeah. if nothing that I do matters? You start getting into matrix territory of, oh, well, you're not here to make the decision. You're here to understand why you made the decision. And, well, it's just it's it's pointless because again, nothing will come of this. His it, Cisco's emissary stuff, if memory serves, from the rest of the season here, I don't think his emissary stuff will come into play at all until near the end of the season. And even that is going to be more about just decide your role and and then the very fi- very finale. But again, all those things were relevant before this twist. This twist complicates things needlessly and adds nothing. It is, in my opinion, one of the dumbest moves uh, Deep Space Nine ever made. Well, and you and I have talked about this before, too, is I have a storytelling concept that I think it's a bad idea to make the coolest or most interesting thing about your character be something that they were born with. Yeah. If they're going to have something cool that they're born with, they need to have something better or more impressive or more relatable or likable or something about it's, them. It's like, think about think about superheroes. A lot of them do kind of come with their powers inborn, like Superman. But... What people celebrate Superman is his personality and his exactly, I will not, do the right thing kind of approach. That's not the best thing about Superman. And when they write that to be the best thing about Superman is when he is at his lamest. Yes, because then he's nothing but a collection of powers. Exactly. Instead of a noble and wise person. And, you know, we can give tons of examples, but it's that same idea. It's like, uh, you can have a chosen one story and it's okay. A good example is Harry Potter. Yeah, Harry Potter's a chosen one and there's a certain hand of destiny, but he also... It, it, he makes choices that are not related to his destiny, and that's what makes him more interesting. You know, he has all these traits about him, but he rises above those things and lives up to them rather than just following the script that his gene, his genes have laid out for him. So, anyway, we've kind of rambled on too long about this. Um, and next week we're going to find out even more. The, obviously, it makes sense. Next week will be an Ezra Dax-related story. Uh, and we'll go into more detail about the specifics of Ezra Dax, because there's more about her. We just don't want to drag this uh, down yeah, too much. She is a divisive figure in the fandom. And we'll talk we'll about that then. We'll discuss her more next time. We'll see you then.